Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks. I'm journalist Markham Hislop. This podcast is all about interesting conversations with energy and climate experts from around the world. And don't forget to follow us on social media, on Twitter, at E-N-E-R-G-I Media, and my personal handle, at PoliticalHam, on Facebook, facebook.com slash energymedia. Energy.media is our website, where you'll find Markham and Energy columns, news stories and op-eds, and the Energy Student Resources Portal, a wiki-style collection of our work that's free for high school teachers and university professors to use in their classrooms. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. During the last energy transition 100 years ago, the major driver of industrial change was the internal combustion engine powered by cheap, plentiful petroleum in the form of gasoline and diesel. And the American industry dominated that, that sector for decades. We think of GM and Ford and, and Chrysler as being the big three. Uh, the equivalent for this energy transition is basically cheap, abundant, clean electricity coupled with batteries. That's kind of the new industrial model that's emerging during the 2020s. Well, the problem is that China is far, far ahead of North America in terms of dominating battery storage. I think they produce something like 50 or 60% of batteries and all through the battery supply chain. So what should North America's strategy be? Catch up to China with existing technologies or leap ahead in terms of, of innovating new battery storage, whatever that might be. So I'm going to talk to uh, Dr. Bentley Allen. He is a research director at the Transition Accelerator and also an associate professor at Johns Hopkins University and the lead author on a roadmap for Canada's battery value chain, building a national strategy for critical minerals and green battery metals. So welcome to the interview, Bentley. Thank you, Mark. It's great to be back on your show. Well, great to have you here because this is this is exciting stuff, is it not? I mean, here we are at the on the cusp of one of probably the greatest in, next er, revolution in industrial revolution, as it were. Uh, it almost feels like the 18th century in some respects. Batteries are at the core of it, the heart of the this energy transition, and we have some very interesting decisions to make, don't we? Absolutely. And it is really exciting. It's so fun to live through a period of time in which uh, not only our energy system is being scrambled, but also geopolitics is up in the air. Stressful, stressful, but stressful with fun. Yeah, well, stressful indeed. So let's talk about this, because I want to read a, a quote from Tony Van Buren, who is the Deputy Associate Director for Science and Technology at Lawrence Livermore National Libra Laboratory. And this was in uh, an interview that was conducted in it was a Utility Dive. So here it is. It's pretty clear that from the Department of Energy and uh, private investments, that one of the underpinning principles is to bring the battering, battery manufacturing ca capability back to the United States. But, if you invest in technologies that are already going on, like lithium ion, that's primarily in Asia right now. There's no way to repatriate that. So what is the United States very good at? We're very good at innovation, he says. And there are three of these laboratories in the, in the San Francisco Bay Area that are, have gotten together and they're providing support and working with the private sector to what is the next generation of battery storage, particularly not for electric vehicles, but for stationary storage, for utility scale. 
for you know large industrial customers uh, maybe even for batteries or storage that goes in your in your garage if you have uh, rooftop solar what do you think of that that whole leaping ahead of where we are and you know imagining the next generation of, the, of, of battery storage yeah i think that um first of all anytime that uh you have someone who's the head of a national laboratory and then me in the same conversation you should always listen to the person who's in charge of a national laboratory like lawrence livermore national laboratory they look after the nuclear missiles and the nuclear technologies that defend the united states and canada uh, so you should definitely listen to Dr. Van Buren and not to me, but I'll give you my opinion anyway. And I, I think that, that my opinion is really colored by, by a couple of things. And one of them is really working very closely with industry on, on the roadmap that you just mentioned. And when you talk to industry, one of the things that they need is they need long investment certainty. They need to know that uh, the battery technology that they work to today, like if the OEMs, if GM develops a new battery today, it wants to be able to use that battery in its cars for 10, 15, 20 years, because it takes a really long time to steer a really large OEM like GM or Ford. So they need that kind of stability in the supply chain and stability in the basic foundational technologies that they're using in order to do what they do well, which is crank on the actual mass production side of things, right? And once we really take seriously the role of mass production in determining success or failure, I think it becomes, uh, it becomes more obvious that there's a false dichotomy being set up here between building current technologies and innovating. Because actually what, what my report argues and what my work I think has really uncovered is that you actually need manufacturing capacity in order to do innovation really well. If you don't have the product and, and production lines in order to actually test drive new technologies, if you don't have that expertise at what's called the shop floor level, then it's actually really hard to innovate on these things in deep, deep ways. So of course, the argument that the United States is good at innovation is correct, and that the strategy should double down on innovation, but that does not mean that we don't wanna build manufacturing capacity right now for lithium ion batteries. The second thing I would say is that many of the technologies that are like next, just five, 10 years away. So, you know, solid state, different forms for the anode. These things are not things that fundamentally change the battery or the metals requirements that we're talking about here, right? A solid state battery is still gonna basically be LFP. And so it's gonna be lithium iron phosphate or it's gonna be nickel based. So the fundamental metal supply chain from the mine to the battery it's going to look broadly the same and learning how to make cathode really well, learning how to do the chemical processing in order to produce cathode active materials. These are things that are going to pay off regardless of what the next 10 or 20 years of innovation uh, looks like. And then we can get to future batteries that are fundamentally different, like lithium sulfur, um, which is still basically a lithium ion battery that might be 10 or 15 years away from commercialization. Um, and then beyond that, there's air and zinc. And these things start to fundamentally change um, uh, what batteries are composed of. But are we going to really be able to develop those and scale them in the time period that we're now talking about? I mean, just to give you a sense of the scale, while we're talking about energy storage, stationary storage versus vehicles, um, you know, if you think about, again, the broadest perspective here of geopolitics, the post-war American economy was built on the auto sector, right? 
building cars in America and exporting them overseas. That was emblematic of what the US grand strategy was, which was to make the world safe for American supply chains, right? Now, obviously that has reversed, right? We, we consume Japanese cars and South Korean cars at a higher rate than we export them. Um, but if you think about how you build the engine of an economy that produces jobs, that really drives the way that an economy is going, you need a really big industry to do that. And cars are a really, really big industry. That means that they can be a driver of the energy transition um, in this kind of fundamental way. If you're talking about innovating on stationary storage, the capacity is just not there for that to be transformational for anything. Um, uh, I just heard an interview, I was listening to a podcast last night while I was you know, doing some plaster work, which is I'm sure what everybody else is doing with their evenings these days. Um, but I, I, so I have the numbers right on the top of my head from, from Jigger Shah himself. And he said to me, the, the US goal of 50% EVs uh, per year, um, you need 800 gigawatts of batteries per year, which is actually, that's where the, the EU supply chain is right now as well. They've got 822 gigawatts of battery production in the pipeline. And that's what the United States will need in order to meet uh, 2030 targets, 50% electric vehicles. That's per year, 800 gigawatts per year. By 2030, most modeling shows that we're gonna have cumulative adding up all of the years until 2030, 150 gigawatts of stationary storage. So it's just, it's a drop in the bucket. We're talking two or 3% maximum. The, the, um, the size of the battery economy versus the vehicle. So if you're gonna innovate and focus on stationary storage, you just don't have an economic driver. If you want an economic driver, you wanna produce cars, well, we need to produce cars now for 2030. That means you have to do it on the current technology. But that doesn't mean you give up on an, on an innovation strategy. It means that you build innovation into the way that you're building these manufacturing facilities now. Okay, I, that actually makes a lot of sense uh, to me. And, and so clearly the United States is uh, intent on trying to catch up uh, on its uh, battery industry. And the Inflation Reduction Act that was uh, announced last, last month uh, is clearly aiming at that. Uh, there's all sorts of announcements coming out uh, about uh, battery investments from from uh, non North American firms who are setting up setting up plant in Canada uh, and the United States. There are conversations between the, the U.S. and Canada at the government level about critical minerals and and refining and processing those minerals. So all of that is great. We seem to have we seem to have gotten the message and we're we're busy working our way towards that. But you brought up Jigger Shaw. And Jigger Shaw is not so well known in Canada, uh, but very well known in the U.S. as a financier of, of new technologies and, and innovation. He's been tapped by Joe Biden to head up the uh, U.S. Department of Energy's loan program. It's tens of billions of dollars uh, that that he has uh, that he'll be loaning out. And it seems that there's a fundamental difference between the way the Americans approach these kind of challenges and the way the Canadians do. The Americans have decided, okay, we're, we're you know we're behind here. We're going to catch up, and we're going to open up the the uh, the money spigot, and we're gonna we're gonna spend money, and we're gonna partner with industry, and we're gonna man, we're gonna do this in a big way. Whereas in Canada, we we kind of sprinkle money around here and there, and you know we try to do things on the cheap, you know, and try not to we not we we don't want to raise taxes, we don't want to pick winners, we don't want to do all of these horrible things. You know, so we, we we do is we talk a good game and we kind of then do it on the cheap. And that's my take on it. 
what's your uh, what's your reaction to that? Yeah, I think that um, for a long time, uh, American uh, industrial strategy, and it's always had, um, was really centered on doing what we would call like first stage innovation, right? Developing novelty, developing new things. And they did that through ARPA-E, through DARPA, um, through the really generous uh, R&D programs that the Department of Energy has always promoted. Um, and, you know, but basically there was very little support for commercialization and what the, the kind of revolution that Jigger is, is um, uh, instituting within the DOE is to say, okay, wait a minute, the DOE's job is not just to seed stuff, but to seed stuff, get it to the commercial stage, do that first of a kind investment through a loan guarantee or, or whatever, and then hand them off to institutional investors. And that's the model that they're doing where they're gonna walk, they're gonna walk them through the valley of death from TRL, you know, six, seven through to 10, and then they need to get their own first big institutional investor once the technology is actually proven on the other side of it. And I think that's a real strategic approach that is new to what they're doing. And they're looking, they're making sector strategies and roadmaps in every single key area. So on Friday, they released the, uh, the SAF roadmap. Uh, the day before they released the hydrogen roadmap. And these are really good. The hydrogen roadmap has targets in it. The SAF roadmap has targets in it. This is exactly what we did in the battery metals. And I'm also doing a SAF roadmap with the Canadian Council for Sustainable Aviation Fuel right now. You can have it back on the show in six weeks or so. And we can talk about that. Um, but they, uh, they are really taking a strategic approach, laying down targets, aligning industry and government investment together and taking an active approach to those supply chains. So it's not even that we're being cheap. I think there are big pots of money in Canada that could make a really big difference. I think if you add up all the money in the net zero space, I mean, first of all, just in the SIF and in the Canada Growth Fund, you've got 22 billion, you got 4 billion more in the critical minerals fund. There's 1.5 in the clean fuels fund. There's some money in the Canada account. We easily have 30, $35 billion that we could spend on the transition right now. That's a, that's a lot of money. I mean, Jigger has about 40, right? Um, so uh, that's a lot of money that we could be using. Uh, the key is to use that money actively rather than passively. So the strategic innovation fund just receives applications. They don't do a strategic analysis of every supply chain, tell everybody what the goal is, tell everybody what the plan is. And that's what they really need to do. They really need to sit down, take an active approach, do a supply chain strategy and, and to draw on expertise when they're doing it. Um, you know, the Department of Energy, these national labs that we're talking about, um, these national labs are staffed with the best academics and bench scientists in the country. And when the DOE goes to tweak some piece of a regulation or when the EPA goes to tweak some piece of a regulation or when they're coming up with the tiering structures for the hydrogen tax credit, the, the, the United States government can go down into those labs, pull out the best people, the very best minds, um, whether they're in academia or in the lab as staff scientists or just adjacent in those networks and get them to actually inform what's going on. So they're doing strategy and then they're matching that with the absolute best expertise. And so when the American system works really well, which isn't always, but it is working really well right now, that's what they can bring to the table. And we miss none of those elements do we have uh, operating properly in the Canadian ecosystem right now. Yeah, I've had the good fortune to interview a number of, of, uh, of uh, experts from those various laboratories. And the amount of modeling and research they do is absolutely yeah. mind boggling. And it was only a couple months ago that the Canadian governments, you know, finally got it. They said, you know what, we're not modeling any of this stuff. We, we were talking about, you know, fundamental seismic shifts in our economy. 
and we don't really model the effect on, you know, the oil and gas industry or, you know, what kind of skills are going to be required in our workforce. And oh, by the way, here's $5 million. You know, let's see if we can't, <laughs> let's see if we can't, you know, close that, that huge gap between us and the Americans. We'll, we'll give you 5 million bucks, which is, you know, like the coffee fund in the PMO. And that's, it seems to me to be emblematic. It's a symbol of the, the American approach versus the Canadian approach. And I, and I know you're plugged into what's going on in Ottawa and you, you consult, you know, you're, you're talking to the, uh, the various bureaucrats in the, you know, department of natural resources or climate change and so on. Do they get it? Like, do the politicians think, get it? I think the expertise and the modeling is there. I think we have the, the capacity and the expertise. It's just not being activated. Probably. Um, because the folks that, because there's no strategic process. Like if you take the hydrogen strategy, it's it's being run without a strategic process, right? Like they have 10 subcommittees and those subcommittees are, they're just talking groups. They don't actually have a target and they don't have a clear sense of where the hydrogen is actually gonna get deployed and a clear sense of what that downstream market is gonna be and when it needs to be ready. So there's, there's the lights are on. <laughs> um, there's somebody is in the kitchen, but it's just not clear whether all the ingredients are actually coming out on the table and adding up to a meal. Um, uh, and and th that's where I think we really need to focus is getting a strategic initiative off the ground that tries to draw these things actually together. And there's a fundamental problem here, uh, Bentley, is, uh, you know, I had the good fortune back in the day to, to be, uh, to get a degree in Canadian history, and I did a lot of business and economic history. Yeah. And I don't, it's no great insight to say that, that Canada's economy has been, to a large extent, built on being uh, hewers of, of wood and right. drawers of water. And, and it seems to me uh, that the change in this energy transition is energy used to be always a commodity. It didn't matter if it was whale oil or if it was coal or it was oil or it was gas, it was a commodity. You dug it up or you mined it or you, you got it from someplace. And now energy is a technology. And that's a fundamental, fundamental difference in, in the energy system that we're building and, the, and the, uh, the expertise that's required, the industry that, that will be, needs to be put in place to, to support that new energy system, the, all of that stuff. And I don't think, my impression is, again, I'm not talking to the, or interviewing the, you know, the kind of high level folks that you are, but my impression is that we haven't quite, it hasn't quite sunk into the Canadian psyche yet. Yeah, I think the, the level of the emergency that's on our table economically hasn't sunk in. I think uh, you just need to look at the export table and see that oil and gas is $120 billion a year and imagine what happens when that goes to 30 or $25 billion a year. And you start to think, oh, we have $100 billion that we got to find somewhere in our economy in order to make our, to make our books balance. And uh, I don't think that's something. Right? There seems to be some denial about the inevitability of that future. And that seems to me to be a major, major liability. I also think there's a lot of denial about how effective the Inflation Reduction Act is gonna be. Uh, and I don't think there's the level of seriousness. Uh, like I remember when the Build Back Better was first proposed and it excluded Canada from the supply chains, it was like an all hands on deck emergency everybody was focused on this. Well, the Inflation Reduction Act should be the same way. 
all the government's energies right now should be focused on making sure that the fall economic statement and the budget in February aligns Canada with those tax credits to ensure that we have a competitive investment case. And that level of emergency, I do not, I do not see that. And that deeply concerns me. And just to get back to your broader point about Canada's position in the global economy, this goes back, I think, to your first question, which is, are we catching up or not, or catching up or, or competing on the future economy? To me, there's a big question about what are we catching up on? What does China actually dominate? China dominates the supply chain. It doesn't dominate these high technology areas. It's still trying to make its electric vehicles competitive with Tesla. It, and it hasn't gotten there. It hasn't gotten the reliability of its batteries up. It hasn't gotten the reliability of its vehicles up yet. It's not at the standard of VW or Tesla. So they are still trying to catch up to the technological frontier with the best Western firms on actual construction of EVs. But what they own is making graphite, which is not technologically complex. So we don't need to like innovate to make graphite better. We just need to do it. <laughs> we just need to actually get it out of the ground and do it. And that requires some policy adjustments that requires some active investment by the state to take a risk where, where a firm doesn't wanna take a risk uh, to, to dig these things up and actually get the case made for an investor and maybe take the first tranche of subordinated debt so that the first loss is on the government's balance sheet and not on the institutional investor's balance sheet. There's lots of things that could be done to get that investment happening upstream in the EV industry. Um, but, you know, that would actually take a, take a strategic approach. But it's, we don't have to catch up on the technological frontier. We're already there. Nano One has gotten everybody's attention globally as being a potentially disruptive technology that would disrupt Umicore and BASF and these large chemical firms uh, in Europe, but also their competitors in Asia, LG Chem. Um, we, we are good at that already, and so is the United States. They have a couple of firms that are kind of in that same midstream space as Nano One, such as Mitra Chem, which is innovating basically how you tweak the chemical process to produce different chemistries. And that's the kind of stuff that, yeah, we're gonna see big American and Canadian firms come into that midstream space and help give us capacity there. And that's really important, but we're not actually need to compete or catch up there. What we need to catch up on is constructing the supply chains. And that requires not doubling down on innovation in the old sense, but innovation in terms of like, let's build a manufacturing supply chain. And then we can do secondary innovation, not the production of novelty, but the improvement of the supply chain and the manufacturing processes that are already on the table. That's actually how Japan beat and Korea beat American manufacturing was they got supply lines and Hyundai sucked at making cars in the 1970s. <laughs> they were terrible at it. But you know what they did in their industrial strategy? They empowered the guys on the shop floor. The middle managers who were on the floor, they got to have a direct line to the management as to how they could improve those processes. And they got better at what we call secondary innovation, innovation on top of processes that are already operating. And that's what the Japanese and the Koreans did in order to produce cars more effectively. And now we all produce cars basically on the Japanese and the Korean model because they were better at managing the shop floor. And we don't think of that as innovation, right? Because they didn't patent it. They just got really good at process. But getting really good at process is what we have to do from the mine all the way to the vehicle construction. Yeah, uh, there's, a, there's a fair amount of literature, uh, you know, as you well know, uh, on innovation as an iterative, pro iterative process, uh, just getting better at small steps at a time until you become really good at something. And I have to tell you this story, but the, my first job as a reporter was in 1988, and we had a, one of the editors in the newsroom had, had a 1986 Hyundai Pony. Must have been one of the first ones they, they uh, brought over to North America. 
and she came in one day and, and she'd had to take a cab because the radiator spout uh, fell off. You know, just a poor well. <laughs> the, the quality was so poor that the radiator spout just fell off one morning. And then she had to take it, get it towed into the shop to, to get it prepared. <laughs> you know, that that's that's pretty poor quality. Uh, and so, OK, we've talked about a lot of a, a lot of uh, uh, different approaches here. And I want to zero in on one that you brought up because you talked about government, Canadian governments taking uh, a, you know, a different approach to investment, the state stepping up and you know, providing capital to, to bridge the, the valley of death in the investment cycle, uh, that sort of thing. And it seems to me, I'm hearing now or reading in a way that I didn't, you know, uh, well, let me back up. I'll provide some more context. I'm a child of the 60s and 70s, graduated high school in 77. So my childhood was dominated by the welfare state and the growing role of government in, in the Canadian economy. But in the 70s, we started to hear about Milton Friedman. And when, you know, we saw, you know, Thatcher, Margaret Thatcher elected in Britain in 1979 and, and Ronald Reagan in the U.S. in in 1980. And you had this reaction against that. It was all about the private sector and all about markets. 40 years later, what are we hearing now? We're, we're getting back to the active state, the what Mariana uh, Mazzucato calls the entrepreneurial state. Right. And that hasn't sunk in yet. I see it happening in the U.S., I, and especially with the Inflation Reduction Act and, and uh, Jigger Shaw's office. And I don't see that happening in, the, in Canada as well. We're still at that sort of hands-off, we're going to let the private sector do it, and we'll just you know, try to facilitate that with tax credits and subsidies and so on. And what's your take on the, is the entrepreneurial state emerging at either the federal level in Canada or at the various, you know, the provincial level? Yeah, I think um, I see little pockets of it here and there. I think what Champagne's office did on the EV supply chain, that was an active approach. They had an idea in their head about what they wanted it to look like and they went out and they built it. And that's great. Uh, I think there's obviously more that could have been done in terms of um, making sure that those downstream investments in cathode factories, battery factories and vehicle assembly um, were tied to the development of Canadian minerals. I think more could have been done strategically. I don't know what's on those term sheets, so I can't say uh, with full confidence that they didn't put the hooks in there that I would like to see, but I don't see the response happening in the mining sector that I expected actually. So I think we're starting to get to the point where we can draw the conclusion that those hooks weren't, weren't there or that those hooks are not being pulled effectively. Um, but there was a strategy there and they executed. Um, there are, there are rumblings that the Canada Growth Fund, which was announced in the budget in, in March uh, and the operationalization of this happening right now, that it'll be able to take a more active approach. And the model there would be Quebec, which Invest Quebec does this. They are the lead investor. They know what the supply chain should look like and they go out there and they try to build it. They make sure that the lithium mines and the graphite mines are coming online at the schedule that they want the schedule that they want. To, to them to come online to. They have the cathode factory in Beckham-Fort that is going to provide demand pull on that. And Invest Quebec is a really, you know, an energetic and an active player in these investment markets. Um, and so there are little pieces of it here and there, but obviously we need to understand the success of these things, the failures of these things, build knowledge around that and, and, and learn a new way of doing things in Canada. I think, well, I'm not a big fan of this explanation, but um, one senior policymaker said to me, 
that part of the problem is just that the only thing in Canada uh, worse than finishing second is finishing first. And I think there is a little bit of that mentality that, well, if we're too bold, then, then that's a problem. And, you know, although I'm Canadian, I, I live most of my adult life in the United States, so maybe I don't have a problem being bold. Um, but I think that's what we need at this moment is we need something that is bold, that, that actually takes a political and an economic risk uh, in order to, to at least provide some coherent argument as to how we're going to save ourselves from the looping crisis. Let me provide a couple of examples uh, to illustrate your point, Bentley. Uh, the uh, uh, Premier Jason Kenney in Alberta, now that he's on the way out of office, it's just a couple more days, you know, another week or two, and, and there'll be a new premier. He's being very frank in, in his interviews. And I, 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 listened, I saw some, uh, uh, I saw some uh, comments that he made about how uh, the Alberta government under his, the UCP has viewed investment. It's very passive. We'll give you tax cuts. We'll give you subsidies. Right. We'll give you, you know, uh, positive regulation, that kind of stuff. Uh, right. And that's it. Very, very what is often called neoliberal. And then you look next door in BC, which has an NDP government and actually has, has contracted with Mariana Mazzucato for strategic advice. And it isn't much different. No, it's not. It, it, it talks a different, <laughs> it talks a better game that's or right. a more active game. But when it comes right down to it, the strategies and the policies and how it conducts itself is very similar. And ISIS, and, and that to me is, is quite striking. Yeah, I agree. And I think that, that to me, the, the interesting thing there is that actually Alberta probably has more strategic capacity in the government than other governments do because they deployed that strategic capacity for decades to build the oil and gas industry. And so actually the tools are there. They just need to be activated and used uh, for the new technologies that are going to actually produce jobs for Albertans uh, in the coming century, as opposed to the one that produced the jobs for the last century. Um, and I think that's that's an interesting kind of paradox about Alberta, which is that it's actually probably better positioned. And certainly I feel that way in, in BC. You know, I spent the last two years living there, so I know what they're doing quite well. And I would say there is not a strategic approach to building the supply chains or to positioning the government or to positioning the province in the, in the supply chains of the future, um, with the exception of forestry uh, and natural gas. Um, uh, in those places, you see the, the state, you know, the government taking a more active role. Um, but yeah, the, 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 the Mazzucato thing did not seem to produce uh, what I would think of as being any kind of push towards a coherent green industrial strategy in, in British Columbia. Bentley, it's a fascinating conversation. I really appreciate this. Thank you very much. Thank you, Markham. Talk soon.